Yeah, and telling people, like, not not caring. Like, I don't care anymore. I'll leave, and people, people, I don't care what they think there when I say this, but people email me asking me for time or asking me for advice or asking me for whatever. And a lot of times I won't even, I won't even respond. Who came up with the rule that whenever random strangers email you, you must email them all back? Or when people ask you for your time, you have to give people your time, you know? And so a good rule of thumb is that if you wouldn't take the call with this person tomorrow, don't take the call three weeks from now, schedule it, you know? Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers and I wanna thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter, And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. Fort Capital is a real estate investment firm based in Fort Worth, Texas, with a track record of transacting more than $1.6 billion in assets throughout Texas, Tennessee, and Florida. The team over at Fort is currently looking to acquire Class B industrial deals between $15 and $100 million throughout Texas, Florida, Tennessee, and now North Carolina and South Carolina. To learn more about Fort Capital, visit www.fortcapitallp.com. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. Looking forward to speaking with you. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, we've, we've been connected through uh, Brent and John Marsh, who've been on the show. And I've done a little cheating. I've, I've got some questions that I, that, I w- that I had to dig for. So we'll get to those. But let's kind of start with your career in, in tech and kind of start with how you went from this tech career to what you're doing now? Sure. Um, I went into tech because I was selling Cutco knives in college and um, I was doing really well with that. But my father-in-law said, you know, you're good at selling, but you're going to cap yourself out. So the two things you should sell is either private planes or you should sell software. So one of those two, because the transactions could be in the tens of millions and so I think I put out a couple applications on working for uh, private jet brokers and the Falcons and Goldstreams and the whatnot. I don't think I got any responses back <laughs> um, now that I think about it. Um, so I went into software and I went into software, um, went into a startup called Wise. We sold to Dell. Um, I enjoyed the whole startup game and kind of smaller team and wearing multiple hats and uh, being multifaceted. Uh, ended up in Dell. Uh, that was fun. I, I was a chief of staff to so one of the CEOs there, uh, and that was fun. But there, you know, there was hundreds of thousands of people, and it was bureaucratic. And I got to learn things about scale and operations, and and international affairs, and taking the company private. I was part of a pretty neat team to help them do that. And but my but my thing was in small smaller entities smaller businesses. So I went back to the startup world and joined DocuSign. Uh, and DocuSign, um, we grew from about 150 people from the time I got there to when I left. We were about 6,000 people, um, and we were about a 40 or 50 billion dollar market cap. So it was pretty big. The market's changed since then in the last two years. 
Um, but software to me was always, um, it was awesome to see the hyperscale, the innovation, how smart people were that had tried to attack these problems, right? Um, it was incredible to just see the impact that it would have in other entities and businesses around efficiencies and automation, streamlining and digitization. All that was awesome. But to me, it never made me tick because I've always loved kind of boring, unsexy, just operating normal businesses. You know, car washes, dry cleaners, landscape companies, uh, financial service firms, whatever, restaurants. I've always liked things I can see, feel, understand very logically, you know? And um, and that's always been the thing I've loved most. So I pursued that. All right. You already hit on one of the questions, but apparently you, you kind of glossed over selling Cutco knives and that you were pretty good at it. Weren't you like one of the top salesmen in the entire country selling knives? I was, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, how? What did you do that was so successful? Oh, man, that's a whole entire podcast alone. (laughs) Um, I'll share a couple things that I think helped me become... So I was the number one salesperson in the country out of like 50,000 people for a couple years. Oh, my gosh. And um, yeah, it's, it's one of the things I'm most proud of because I had a severe stutter problem uh, growing up. And... um, it's really hard cold calling someone and being like, hi, is Chris there? And Chris is like, yeah, to see. And I can't get anything out of my mouth, you know, <laughs> because of my stutter problem. So it was really hard asking for that. But um, I think that the things that made me successful was um, my, I was just utterly dedicated and committed. Um, someone once told me when your back is against the wall, your true colors show. And my back was against the wall. My father was sick. We had, we didn't have much money at all. You know, I didn't want to put any more burden on them because they couldn't afford even their own life, yet alone my life or college or anything. So I just felt that pressure. I gave it all I had, probably pretty unhealthy. You know, I got my identity from that clearly. Um, But that was like hard work, just really, 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 really hard work. Just every morning getting up early, um, asking the teachers to go to the bathroom, make cold calls in the bathroom, sit outside of the cafeteria, make cold calls, you know? So just the sacrifice, like there was a lot of sacrifice that went into becoming the best. Um, Another one was uh, the power of pipeline and the power of referrals. Uh, That I was utterly focused. I, I was so fearful of losing of losing referrals, of not having appointments to go to, that I honestly put more emphasis on ensuring that I had a rapport with the customer than ensuring the customer bought. So at the beginning of the appointment, I'd be like, hey, Chris, um, so I'm here you know, to show you Cutco today, but um, I honestly don't care if you buy or not. If you bought, that'd be awesome. It's a great product. You probably cook, so you're probably going to want something. But even if you don't, uh, so long as I do a good presentation, if you could just refer me to people like, you know, if you know anyone else, uh, that could see the presentation. That's all I asked for. Is that something that sounds like reasonable to you? And you'd be like, yeah. So in your mind, you're thinking, yeah, if he does a good job, I'll introduce him, whatever, to Brent Beachmore and John Marsh, right? And, yeah. and so for me, that was the win, um, knowing that the sale would follow. But to me, I kept what's most important important, right? Because if you did, because if you bought $10,000 but didn't infer me to anyone, I have no one to go see tomorrow. Right. And so um, that was extremely important that pe- that salespeople today and business owners today don't think of. They think of the sale now instead of the predictability tomorrow, right? And the pipeline tomorrow. Um, another thing was 
I really believed in the product. And so I wasn't scared to ask like aggressively. Um, so if the best, if the biggest and best set was $5,000, everyone this looked like, I was like, I'm never even, I'm not gonna even show that page. Like maybe if I have some guts, I'll be like, there's another set, you know, but they would even, they would not really position it and ask for the sale on it. And that, and I started asking for two of those sets with silverware, with, with, uh, with, <laughs> with uh, pots and pans. So it'd be like today, you know, um, I wouldn't be doing my job, Chris, if I didn't ask you to spend $25,000 on knives and they would do kind of what you, what you just did. And then they'd realize I'm dead serious. So I would say, um, believe in the product and have the courage to ask. I'm very upset at nonprofit and ministry leaders in our country today. Um, I meet with them and they don't ask me and my wife uh, to give aggressively. Um, and I think it's because they don't truly believe in the product themselves. Um, and if they do, they do. And they're like, you know, we like to get you involved. Anything helps. I'm like, okay, like anything helps. Versus the people like Scott Harrison at Charity Water or Brett Hagler of News Story. Uh, they'll be like, hey, look, um, I'm not scared to ask you, you know, Reed Hoffman of LinkedIn uh, for $10 million, right? Because you could help save the water crisis or you could help the homelessness problem, right? Uh, they believe in what they're offering and they're inviting you into something that they believe is value for both. Um, so I think a couple of those things, hard work, power of tomorrow, power of referrals instead of this sale now, um, and believing in something so much that you ask for the big hair audacious order, you know? And I, the only thing I would ask to that is you believed in, in the knives, you believed in Cutco. Is it possible? Like people can believe in just about anything. It's not like you, you know, come out of the womb and you're destined to believe in knives. Like people can believe in anything. Why were you able to believe in knives? Because you were, you know, you had, you know, uh, a family that you had to help. You had to make sales. You had to do all these things. Like, I guess the question is, what can get people motivated to believe in something? Because it's not necessarily the product you believe in. It's the whole process and, and being involved. Is that not right? Yeah, I think it's three things. I think it's knowing, believing, and doing. So one is knowing in your head, right? Like, um, you know, I have a lint roller here. In my head, I can't even get myself to believe, to actually know that this thing adds value. Like it just doesn't, it just doesn't register. It just does not for me personally. So I can even yet alone believe it, yet alone act on it. Right. Uh, for Cutco, I knew the facts, right? So I knew the facts that the company's been around since 1949. I knew the facts that it was hundreds of millions of dollars. I knew the facts that millions of families had it. I knew the facts that it was American made, that it was guaranteed. So, so I didn't know all that. Uh, then I actually started to hear people say how much they use them, how long they had them, how great they are. So I started to believe it. Right there, I believe, after the belief of anything, it actually becomes courage. I think right after there, you have to actually have the courage and the audacity to actually do, to actually ask now, you know? So I believe a lot of nonprofit leaders, they do know, or a lot of business leaders, uh, like we own a pool company, right? And I talk to my pool sales leaders about this. I say, you know that we're the best pool company in our market. You know that we can build it on time and on budget. You know that a lot of people want to use us. You believe in your heart, this is the right thing for them to do. You believe in the investment that this costs. You know the ROI is going to happen with your family, their kids. But some of you literally cannot have the courage to look at another human in their face, to 
to actually ask for the order. And it has, what's the best way to ask for the order or for the investor or for the whatever? It's to ask. It's quite literally to actually ask, you know, um, so many, so many times I remember when I was young and not dating and not married to my wife, I would always, you know, I would always tell my buddies dating around at the university of Alabama that would have a crush on a girl or whatever. And, and yeah, blah, 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 blah. I know that, you know, she thinks highly of me. You know, I really like her. I feel like we have chemistry, but you know, we just haven't gone on a date yet. I'm like, have you actually asked, you know, like actually asked and they're like, well, no, 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 you know, but she knows, you know, I want to go on a date with her or in this case, you know, they know that I want them to donate to my nonprofit. You know, it's like, just ask, right? Just take the courage to ask for the order. I love it. All right. Before we move into Garden City, I wanted to ask a question on uh, on DocuSign and being chief of staff. What does the chief of staff do at a company that's scaling like that? Like, what did you do in that role? Yeah, um, I believe in the chief of staff role arguably more than almost any other role, I believe it is such a force multiplier. Um, a CEO is called to be strategic, not tactical. CEO needs margin for relationships and to think and be creative and strategic. Yet, as businesses scale, um, someone has to answer emails, someone has to follow up on the calls, someone has to repair on the calls, right? Someone has to um, do everything A through Z, right? Um, and so all that's tactical. And the more employees, the more fill in the blank, uh, the more tactical it becomes. And so a chief of staff is literally an extension of you uh, that allows you to stay strategic and allows you to stay focused on the vision, the mission, the values of the organization so that you have an extension of you that talks for you at times and thinks as on your behalf as time that applies for you, that follows up on certain things for you, that project manages certain things for you so that you have margin. Um, so it's one of the roles I have now, even preparing for this call, right? I have a chief of staff internally at Garden City that was emailing you asking what are the topics we're going to speak about, right? What are the things I need to prep about, right? So forth. He gave me a whole write-up on this podcast, right? I know uh, all my meetings for tomorrow are already followed up on or already scheduled, right? Um, all the strategic initiatives that I need to tactically do, they're acting on my behalf so that I have time to focus on my most important strategic relationships, so that I could uh, touch on the touch and walk alongside the CEOs of the companies we own. Um, so that's what it does. It, it gives you margin. And the one thing you cannot buy in life, as you know, is time, right? But the question is, everyone stops and says that oh, you can't buy yourself more time, but no one then says, well, then what can you do? Right. And I, I think there's only two things you can do. Like, it's just like making money. It's either you spend less so that you save more or you make more. It's only two things. So with time, Either I say no to more things, which I do, or I literally or I literally buy more time as an extension of me, right? Which in my mind is achieves that. Okay, real quick, because this is we have a lot of people that are CEOs that listen to this. If if somebody was starting the next, if I was going to go hire a chief of staff tomorrow, what would that first six months look like while they're there? Are they just shadowing everything I'm doing? Like, how do you get your brain into their brain as quickly and efficiently as possible? You just said it. Okay. You just said it. it's literally shadowing everything. Yep. Okay. You're just yeah. there. Yeah. Like if, like if, um, if my chief of staff didn't just fly back to DC, he would be sitting right next to me 
hearing every word I'm saying, um, and just learning and thinking like me. He's on every call of mine. He's taking every action item. He's writing every email, um, all the LinkedIn messages, you know, just everything, everything. And right now, he's only been here for two and a half months, my chief of staff. And so he, so he's still learning. He's still learning my brain. He's still learning how I, my personality, my operational frameworks, right? Uh, he hates that every call of mine goes 20, 30 minutes over, but now he's realizing that it's the relational capital that matters most for me. Um, so, so yeah, so you learn that person's mind and brain. And the biggest word is trust. You just have to entrust them with everything. You have to entrust them with your email. You have to entrust them with your passwords. You have to entrust them with the phone calls. You can trust them with people's compensation. Um, and if you don't fully trust them, then they can't be as valuable and helpful to you. It's just that simple. Yep. And you just tell him, hey, anytime you have a question or you're wondering why I'm doing something, just ask me why. And I'll continue just to, the quicker we can get reps, the, the, the more valuable we'll be together. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. So you're in the tech world. DocuSign uh, goes in, um, you know, becomes a really large company. And then you kind of mentioned that you were getting more interested to go back into, we'll call it Main Street America. I think you've called small business the heartbeat of America. So let's just start there. Why do you have an affinity and love for small to mid mid-sized boring businesses? What is it about them that you love? Besides the government, they're the largest employer in our country, right? So small and mid, small companies um, make up the significant majority of our country. And small companies make up the significant majority of the wealth creation in our company. It's not the tech moguls and celebrity, you know, Facebook, Google, Fang. It's not them. It's the millions of small businesses across America. Um, and these small businesses really hold together our infrastructure, right? So uh, when you just look at, you know, just I always just talk about a typical week of mine, but you know, this week, right? I had to take my car in and they said I need to back tires and my brakes are not working, right? And there's something hanging from the bottom of my car. If that's if the, if the small business that I'm taking it to next week did not exist, I wouldn't have a car. Right. In our neighborhood, we don't have the big waste management of the world. Right. We have a smaller waste company. If that small waste company does not exist, come pick up my trash. It's a disaster. Right. When my wife and I flew in on Sunday for, um, or when I flew in on Sunday from the ranch there that I was talking to you about, my AC stopped working. Right. A small business owner came out and he fixed my AC and put some more free on in there. Right? The list goes tonight after I leave his office, someone's going to come clean it. Right. Um, so it's everywhere. I'm going to an event tonight. Uh, there's going to be a valet there. It's a small business. Right. Um, every single month, they have to clean the duck traps of this restaurant. That's a small business. The place cannot operate unless fire suppression safety works. So if the cash is on fire, it doesn't burn it down for insurance purposes. That's a small business. So it runs, it runs everything, right? It runs everything. And the businesses that are even large in our mind that are the larger local businesses, kind of the more the regional players, they're still smaller businesses, you know? Um, so I've always liked these smaller businesses. Uh, now they make anywhere, the ones we look at, 
make anywhere between $2 million of net profit per year to about $10 million of net profit per year. Right? Those are the wealthy dudes and gals in our country. Those are the people on the sidelines at the UT Austin games or the Alabama Crimson Tide games. Right? They're the people finding their private planes down there. That They're making millions of dollars running a good, solid business, paying their tax dollars, right, employing people, and doing it humbly. I love it. Okay, so you're at DocuSign and you realize you have this love uh, for small business. What was, you know, you probably could have gone and bought one and just ran it, but you decided to kind of build uh, Garden City, which we'll get into. What, how did the idea came to be that you wanted to start acquiring businesses and, and what kind of, kind of value did you think you were going to bring or that you do bring? Yeah, um, it actually started exactly as what you just said is my wife and I were just like, hey, I'm like, I've always loved small businesses. DocuSign went public. Yeah, I'm, in, I'm investing in a bunch of, you know, whatever tech deals, knowing that I'm going to lose my money on most of them. <laughs> um, and I'm like, you know, why don't I just go invest in like a lifestyle like business that will throw off like real estate like yield, right? I have all these people that they go and they buy apartment complexes or rental houses, right? And it throws off 20% yield, 15% yield, right? Cash on cash. Well, while the equity of the property is appraising. And I'm like, that's cool. I have zero, zero passion for just making money or buying a property and real estate. I've never had it. I've always been obsessed with people. You know, I'm a, I'm very much a people person. Um, and so, um, so I was like, what if we bought a business that employs people a lot of people. And when we own it, it could throw off a yield. And our thing is we could actually provide really good jobs where people actually love their work and that they are invited into excellence and they're invited into having purpose at work so that they could go home and be better fathers and mothers. Right. So why don't we do that? And um, I talked to someone about buying barbershops, like buying a handful of barbershops. I was like, yeah, okay. Barbershops throwing up a couple hundred thousand dollars of free cash flow per year. I could buy a couple of them, you know, I'll keep throwing off a couple hundred thousand dollars of free, uh, free cash flow a year. And I could, you know, really impact the people that work there, you know, and that's where it started. And then people started telling me about the search fund space, the people that go to business school, they don't want to go work at a large enterprise, but instead they become entrepreneurs by acquiring a company. And that's called search fund. So they're searching for a company to buy. And once they find that company to buy, they raise money from high net worth in- individuals. They go buy that business and run that business and scale that business and eventually sell that business. And I was like, whoa, never even heard of that. Like, that's super cool. You're telling me like guys and girls graduate from Stanford and Harvard and Booth and Northwestern. Instead of going to work for Microsoft and Google's of the world or Boeing, they're going to go and buy a small business. Like, like, wait, there's two people that have like brains that are like from this tech-ish world or could do really cool tech-ish stuff, but they're choosing boring, unsexy operating businesses, you know? Like, that's cool. Let me learn more about that. And then I found out that in this space, the rate of ret- the internal rate of returns are 30 plus percent over the last couple of decades. So that blew me away. I was like, wow, you could actually make a lot of money. And then that's where it started being like, hey, instead of me buying some barbershops or whatever, car washes, what about some like, what about if we just buy a lot of businesses and we build like a Brookshire Hathaway like model 
all with the focus on people, like a people first model where people could thrive, prosper, and flourish, all driven by our faith. All right, let's keep going there. What when when you make that the focus? What are things that you're tangibly doing, things that are your edge that you're not seeing in other parts of the world that you kind of want to inflict on the world? Like in these businesses that we buy? um, Are you referring to... There's three things we focus on. So let me know which one you're referring to. When we buy a business, we look at building a people-first culture where they could all thrive. Um, That's the goal, obviously. Uh, two is technology enablement. So we really want to make it the most innovative company in their industry uh, through technology. Um, and number three is sales. So strategic sales. So leveraging our group of 50 investors to come alongside the business to make really strategic, unfair introductions that get them to knock down huge contracts so that our businesses could double very quickly. So culture, tech, and sales. Well, let's go through, we'll kind of go through each of them. But when you think of people first and you think of culture, how do you inflict a people first culture? Like if you're going to buy my business tomorrow, maybe the question is, what are things that start happening the 12 months after you've bought me that might not have been happening before that kind of is your spin on things or your flavor? Yeah. Um, So basically, um, the first thing that we do, I mean, there's some, the very, 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 very first thing we do is before we buy the business, we meet with all the key leaders, which not a lot of people do. Um, so we meet with all the key leaders and I sit down with them myself and it's the longest two days ever. Um, and I just ask them three questions. I'm like, what's your story? And you can't talk about what, what you do at the company. Uh, so I want to actually know you, which they've never been asked. Yeah. So you could just start and stop right there. You know, Um, that's one. Two is if you were the new owners coming in, uh, what is one thing that you would address very quickly? You know, and you hear things like, um, you know, either tactically, like, you know, I'm in sales and I run sales and we don't have any uh, sales support or, or account management or CRM or whatever it is. And then you hear some more intangible things such as, you know, we want to work somewhere that I have opportunity to grow. You know, I don't know what I got to do to uh, get a promotion here, or we don't have any values or vision or mission, you know, stuff like that. So you get really good insight. Um, And then the last one is if you were me as a new owner of the company, what's, what's one thing you would definitely not change? Definitely don't touch, don't get close to like, let it stay as is. And they're like, oh, 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 like our culture or oh, our product team's amazing, you know, or um, yeah, our brand, our brand's really good or, or whatever it may be. Or like, hey, the founder, the founder is the best guy in the world. Like we cannot lose him. Like that's one, right? Uh, so so that's that's one thing that we do at the gates. Um, the other thing that we do is that we make, um, we try to make everybody owners. So something I say all the time is if you want people to think like owners, make them owners. Kind of goes back to the same simplicity about like if you want the order, ask for the sale, right? Um, just ask. Uh, and so, just if you want them to think like owners, uh, make them owners, at least a management team. So, out of the gates, we don't try to wait to see if they're going to ask us for equity. Maybe if they don't ask for it because they've never had it before, we don't bring it up. Yay, we saved a couple percent, you know? Um, so, we just out of the gates make everyone owners. Um, we put in a 401k plan very quickly and we match it, which most of these small businesses don't have that at all. You know, so we do that. 
Um, and then, but the more, probably the most important thing is we really start this uh, journey of cultivating a healthy environment. That's what we do. A healthy environment where it's all based on trust uh, and vulnerability and teamwork. Um, and we get together right out of the gates to c- come up with our vision for the company, our mission for the company and our non-negotiable values for the company. And then we teach people different models and frameworks that we're blown away. They've never heard of like radical candor that in business we're called to challenge each other very directly while caring deeply. And then we walk them through frameworks as to how to challenge each other directly, right? In a caring way. So we walk them through a thing called the clearing model, right? That's that if someone's late to a meeting, don't just call them out, but like, Hey, you're late to a meeting again, Chris. Like I don't want to have, I don't want to have that happen again. And then you also don't want to not tell Chris anything that he's not late to a meeting. So we practice, Something where it's, you know, in your one-on-one or you ask Chris, Chris, can we have a clearing model? And Chris says, yes, I have time right now. And you go, Chris, five things. One, facts. Facts are you were five minutes late to our meeting and this is the second time this has happened. Number two is the story I tell myself. The story I tell myself is that you don't value our team meeting or you don't think it's important. Um, three is the way it made me feel. The way it made me feel, it made me feel very, very disappointed in you and it made me feel very angry right? Um, number four is my role. My role is that the first time you were late, I didn't say anything to you and I should have so that you knew that um, it was unacceptable. And what I want, what I want is to make sure that the next team meeting, you are not late or if you are running late, you just give me a heads up, you know, and then they repeat it back to you. And 95% of the time, Chris, after they repeat it back, it's already solved. Like there's not like, you don't have to come up with a plan. It's just a healthy way of communication. And in these small businesses, communicate small businesses or in small families, right? Communication is everything. Communication is key, right? I love that. Are there, uh, is there something that if you hear it while you're looking at the business and, and there's a certain answer, or maybe it looks good from the outside, but when you start getting in, it's an immediate, this isn't going to work for us. Are there things, what's your filter for looked good on paper, not good? uh you know going forward there's a lot um if if things i mean uh i just call it our spidey sense you know like if all of us are just really saying like our spidey senses in this deal is that it doesn't feel good like it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck we just have to have the courage to say you know it's a duck and we need to walk away from it you know um and so there's been a lot of deals that on paper they're screaming good I mean, great industry, great competitive mode, great profitability. The management team is solid. I have two in my mind right now. Um, and one of them, you know, we, we flew down and we met with the management team and the meeting was going great. And something about it for us was just like, it's just, it's just not clicking for us. You know, there were just some oddities about it. They were a little, they were like, they got cold sweet a little bit. We were not that excited about it. It just, it just didn't feel right. It's kind of like, you know, when you were dating before married and you know, that, that girl, she comes from a great family. She has great character. She's pretty. I don't know. It just feels weird. Yeah. It just feels weird. It doesn't <laughs> click. It just, just does not click. You know, it's the same exact thing with buying businesses sometimes. Yeah. And sometimes it just feels really natural yeah. and it just flows and the business model flows and the financials flow. And when you have conversations around valuation, it's just, it's clear. It's simple. We're both speaking the same language on one call. We cannot get all out, you know, 
versus other calls. It's just difficult. I would say the biggest thing is just the communication with the owner. If the owner is just, if the owner's just sketchy, we feel that the deal's sketchy. Something we say a lot of, if it feels weird, it's going to be weird, right? Like we say that a lot. Like if it feels weird, it's going to be weird. Um, and you know, you're getting in bed with these people, even if, even if they're selling you hundred percent of the business, so they're technically getting out, they never get out. You know, I mean, they, I mean, they've been in this thing, what, 60 hours a week for the last 190 years, you know, or whatever it is, 30 years. I mean, they know everything. You're going to call them about a hundred things that you forgot to transition out during the transition period, you know, <laughs> like no matter what, you know, you're like, Oh wait, like we totally didn't know that you need bonding this business. We didn't think about the car insurance. We didn't think about the Wi-Fi. who still owns the domains, right? We forgot to, to transfer this domain. There's a hundred, there's a hundred things. And if it just doesn't jive well with that business owner, it's, it's going to be hell. Yep. Do you usually want the business owner, uh, the businesses you buy to stay on board or are you kind of uh, agnostic to that? Um, yeah, we typically want them to at least roll over equity. So we want them to at least own a piece of the business. It's kind of weird to us if, if they're trying to tell us what a great investment we're about to make and, and how the next, you know, Five years are the best years that's ever happened in history. And yet you don't want to roll over any equity. It's kind of weird, huh? But that's interesting. Um, and so we're like, hey, we're giving you a chance to roll over. So instead of us paying you $10 million for this business, um, how about we pay you nine and you, and you can maintain 10%. And so if the business makes a million dollars a year, we take on 900,000, you take on 100,000. Sounds sweet to you, right? Don't you say it's going to make a million dollars next year? Or wait, maybe things to make more, so you'll get more than you know a hundred thousand, right? So you challenge them on it, and they really believe in the business. You're like, yeah, and if you give me twenty, I'll take twenty. I'm like, sweet, okay, good. And they're like, no, 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 no. like no chance, not rolling anything over. I want, I want out completely. I don't want no earn out, no rollover, no nothing. You're gonna like something weird here. They said, no, we're just being generous. We want you to have 100% of the upside. We would be being greedy by taking that 10%. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And we're just like, we're very clear. And we say what I just told you, you know? Everything I've read is that I'm assuming, I, you know, in the first 90 days post-close, one, you're probably buying businesses that you're not looking to just jump in and change. What does that first 90 days look like? Is it very, hey, don't change anything, observe and and just kind of be a part or do you have kind of a 90 day playbook or a first six month playbook or anything of that nature? Um, I'll be completely honest. Be completely like, honest. Yeah. Is, is so many people are like, oh, like, what's your operational playbook? And I come up with a really like amazing answer. You know, but <laughs> operational playbook. You, like, you want to talk about like our, our like culture playbook or like our technology operations playbook, or you want to talk about our sales playbook. Yeah. So much of it. I mean, so much of it is, is being reactive to the fires you're putting out. Right. Um, and I remember Brent B. Shore just, I mean, he's been the biggest help for me by far of launching and running Garden City. He was like, all this stuff that you're like thinking about doing and all these strategies and all these amazing things, you know, and these playbooks, you know, he's like, throw it all out because you're going to be so much in putting out fire mode, you know? Yeah. And that's what happens, you know, as you buy a business and you realize like, how did we ever think about this in diligence that like they literally don't have any sales people? 
like, like, like how, and it's because in diligence, you're worried about a hundred other things that are like the thing. And then, so you're like, Oh, like they've been telling us like they clearly need salespeople. So what do you do your first 30 days? You try to find them a salesperson. They're like, Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like uh, they don't even have a controller. You know, we got to close out the books. We don't need a controller, you know? And then they tell you that, you know, that they don't have like emails, their emails get stopped on the big, like the 17th of every month because of their weird local provider, you know, that they got to pay more to if they don't want to. You're like, okay. Now we got to roll out like an email system, right? It just it goes on and on and on and on and on. Right. So to the point of like this amazing operational playbook, it's just like you're trying to really come alongside. We're not trying to change a lot in the first 90 days, almost really almost anything. We're just really trying to come alongside to the management team and ask them like, where is it that you need the most amount of help? Like, where is it that is really keeping you up at night that we can help you out? Like one of our companies is the largest janitorial company there in Eastern Tennessee. And they're, and one of the things they told us at the gates is they were like two things. One is uh, we have like 500 employees and we don't have a head of people. Like, so we don't have someone to actually look over our recruiters and our head of training. And we, and when people leave, like we don't like, so ever, so it's like whack-a-mole. Like as a management team, we're just trying to step in the best we can. Um, and we were like, why don't you have that? They're like, we just don't know where to get that person. I'm going to pay them, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, okay. That's fair. And then the second thing is they're like, and we spent a lot of time doing payroll. Has to be weekly payroll for all these cleaners. You know, it's hourly, it's time cards. It's hard. We're like, never thought about like an automated system. We're like, yes, we know that exists, but like, who's going to roll that out? Like, who's going to know which system to buy, how to procure it, how to implement it, and how to adopt it? And we're like, we can help you with those two things, you know? So that's what we did, right? Yeah. Okay. I think when people think of buying companies and holding company, our friend up in Omaha made the world believe that, oh, you just kind of eat peanut brittle, you buy a company, and you and then you just play gin the rest of your life and just let them go off. And one uh, thing- You know Warren Buffett is my godfather, right? Yeah. He is? No. <laughs> no <kidding>. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he had me there for a quick second. Um but then there's like, and I've talked to Brent about this, then there, there is a fine line between we're going to let you run your business and we just actually stepped over the line and now we're running your business. Yes. So if I were to say, hey, Michael, you're about to buy this company from me, what will my relationship with you look like? I'm rolling over. I'm going to still run the day to day. But what is my world going to look like with you? What, what, what is that going to look like? From what we've seen, typically, if someone's going to sell your business, they're not really interested in staying on. I mean, we haven't seen it, you know? Um, it, like, right now, we're looking to buy minority stake of a business, about a third of a business. And it started off with majority. And he was just like, like, why am I going to be doing all the work as CEO, right? Sell you majority and keep doing it just for a salary. It makes no sense, you know? And you're going to be taking home all the distribution, right? So like he, at that point, he's not going to work for just a salary. That's silly, you know? And so he was like, look, but I, but I don't want to sell right now. I still got it in me, but how about I sell a minority stake and I still run the business, you know? And worst case is I sold the third of the company and get some chips off the table. Uh, best case is I sold the third of the company gets just off the table and I inherited a partner that's going to help me grow so that my remaining 66% grows, right? Um, but we haven't really seen owners that are like, hey, I want to sell my business and um, I just want to stay on and run it. 
Um, so I haven't seen that. Um, but um, to answer your question is we we really, really, really try to not run these companies, right? I mean, we have a small team of like six, seven people. Um, I mean, we're investors, right? We're looking, we're looking for good deals. Uh, we are diligencing those deals. We're structuring them in a very fair, mutually beneficial way. And then we're trying to come alongside to help those companies grow. We put a very impressive uh, board of directors in each one of our companies. And we just have a monthly call to check in on culture, tech, sales, and finances. Um, and so, but it's not our goal to run this. Right now, uh, we're about, we've been running one of our companies and we all look at each other and we're like, this is horrible. This is not what we were supposed to be doing. But it's because we underestimated the, the power of the leadership team and we did not realize how integral the owner was. He did a little head fake on us. And it was our first deal. And, um, and, you know, but he was very, much more important than we thought. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if I, okay. So if the CEO or the owner is leaving post close is one of your lines of, um, something you need to get done is that you're going to replace that owner with the CEO almost immediately, or do you kind of start recruiting once you've learned more about the business, once you've bought it? Um, both, uh, many scenarios. So the, the best sort of business that we buy is when we speak to a business owner and we're like, so what are your, you know, so what, so what have you all profited so far year to date? And they're like, I have no clue. Like, uh, 4 million, 3 million, five, I have no clue. Um, sorry, I've been playing a lot of golf. We're like, that's good. And we're like, cool. Uh, who's your biggest customer to hear this year? And they're like, uh, you know, X, Y, Z. And then we come to find out X, Y, Z was like two years ago. We're like, this is excellent. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, look, I don't know, but you have to ask, like, ask my GM, ask my CFO, ask my head of sales, right? Like ask them, they're like, they're deep in the business. You know, like I've been like, I own it and, but I really have it professionally managed. Right. Um, and we're like, that's what we want. We want to own it, but we want to have it professionally managed. So that works out really well. When the owner knows everything, right? That's an owner hustle, right? That's an owner hustle, which we don't look for those. We don't want those, obviously, right? Um, so, so that's the thing. Yep. Let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor, Juniper Square. If you aren't familiar with Juniper Square, it's an easy to use all-in-one investment management software designed specifically for real estate owners. We have been using it at Fort Capital for several years now, and it has completely revamped the experience we're able to provide our investors through reporting, management, and efficiency. Here's Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, explaining more about their platform. We saw this really big shift where, you know, Today, if you're an investor, whether you're a high net worth investor or you're an institutional investor, you have a lot more options if you want to invest in real estate as an asset class compared to maybe five or even 10 years ago. And with the kind of proliferation of options, one of the things that, that happened was that as an investor, you start to have a lot more control. And with control, you can make more demands. And with those demands, you can place those on your managers. And while that might make life difficult for some managers who aren't ready to adapt, one of the key demands is, hey, we need more transparency. Like, I need to know if I'm going to give you $100, how is that $100 doing? Where is it invested? And what is the return on my investment? You can check out episode 37 to listen to my full conversation with Brandon or visit cjunipersquare.com for more information. That's S-E-E junipersquare.com. And now back to the show. All right, let's talk tech. You come from the tech world. Um, 
I'm, I'm assuming you bring DocuSign into every company. If they're not using DocuSign, they're getting it. You assume very correctly. But, okay, you've looked at a lot of these businesses. Let's just start with a broad question. Is like, what are most of these small service-based or small businesses lacking, just generally speaking? And then we'll get into kind of how y'all think about implementing tech. But what are most of them missing? Is it everything? Is it nothing? Is it certain parts of the business that's usually lacking? How would you categorize this? Missing a lot. Depends which industry. Depends which industries that they're in. Um, if they're in any kind of IT service-like industries, then they're naturally more tech-enabled. You know, they're um, they get it by guilty by association, right? So they're more in the tech circles. They're more aware that there's a thing called Gmail and CRM uh, and e-signature and everything like that. When you're looking at other industries that are, you know, more in the uh, contracting or trade or, you know, construction or anything kind of more blue collar ish like that. Uh, it's bad. It's just really, 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 really bad. Um, in, in, in a lot of cases, there's like no technology whatsoever. And if there is technology, it's not adopted at all. It's adopted to its core, to its bare minimal functionality and use. Um, so the parts that we look at, uh, kind of the three systems that we always take a look at, one is uh, the financial systems. Like We need the ability to get a financial readout. So we looked at just installing uh, Bill.com as well as QuickBooks like out of the gates. We try to uh, deploy that immediately, I would say. Depending on industry, 50% of businesses that make between two and $10 million a year probably use it in QuickBooks. If you are, awesome. Um, if not, we're not surprised and that's okay. You know, um, so that's kind of the first area. The second area that we look for is just a, uh, a CRM system, right? So uh, just something that actually allows us to track and manage uh, both the customers and the management that we have with customers and or fit, uh, Ideally, the actual core operation as well. So, you know, something like a service tie-in uh, really helps with everything through agency, managing the customers and sales, as well as actually the service itself, the reminders, the dispatch, the operations, all that stuff, right? So that's ideal. Worst case, if it doesn't have a core operation in it, you know, and like if it's a janitorial company um, and it only has just the CRM for sales and doesn't have any capabilities in there for the core operations of cleaning and scheduling, that's fine. At least give us a CRM. And the third one is uh, HR and people. Um, is we try to automate HR and payroll very quickly as well. So those are the three that we try to do out of the gates. So if I were to take like Service Titan, and I and I know you know this probably better than anybody, and I've often said this: the best software in the world is useless if nobody uses it. And the I would argue that it's more important that there's a team in place that actually knows how to implement software and make it become a part of the business, which is not a one training. Hey, everybody, look at Service Titan. This is how you do it. And now we're going to use this going forward. It could take up to a year to kind of get that to where it's second nature. So maybe my question is just, I know how I would do it if I was in the business every day, but do you... How do you find that person that's going to be accountable for really deploying that software and making it a thing? We use service providers and consultants. Um, so someone on our team, 
uh, it's full time. And the gentleman on our team, he's managing the deployments of these softwares, but he's then working with service providers and IT companies uh, to do all the different projects. So that's so he's holding them accountable, having uh, daily or weekly checking calls, right? With both the portfolio um, management team as well as the service provider and us, right? And so we're kind of we're really spearheading it for them, right? Which they could all do this. Like if a small business owner is hearing this right now, he could do what we do, you know, like the pool business that we own in South Florida. So Brent owns one in um, in Arizona, as you know, and we own one in South Florida. Um, the pool business, um, you know, they they their website is goes down a couple times a month. Uh, their phone systems, you can't put people on hold. Um, they have no SEO, right? That um, they had no CRM, right? Um, just the list goes on and on and on. Um, they they're on um, old school pop three email exchange, right? Um, all of this. So we found and asked around um, a good IT consulting company, Three Guys Shop, to deploy Office 365. They're great. They're local down there, you know, and they're helping us with our domain and our SEO and our compliance and our fraud and, and our cyber and everything. And that's it. They, The old donor could have done that, right? But he didn't. So much, so much of it just takes initiative, you know. But we do stay on top and manage it, right? Um, uh, so, so that is very important, so it doesn't go by the wayside. Yeah, yeah. Is that the same how you treat your third component, which is sales? Do you do you guys like to manage uh, the sales training, or do you hire a consultant? Well, both. So one is we we believe big time in sales, so we believe you should have a sales leader. Right, a lot of small businesses. What we come to realize is they have this model where they are celebrating when sales happens. Um, and so, I'll give you an example. One of the companies that we own, we bought them, and a couple about a couple of weeks in, I'm talking to the sales manager, and I'm saying like, "Hey, uh, so what's your sales goal this month?" He's like, um, "I'll just keep it easy: two million dollars, twenty-four million dollars a year, though." It's like. Uh, last year we did more than that. And he's like, yeah, $2 million. Like that should keep the lights on. I'm like, Oh, I didn't buy the business to keep the lights on. You know, <laughs> um, I bought the business to turn more lights on. Um, and, um, and so I asked him, I go, so what's your, like what sales reps are, um, on the line of terminating that are not, uh, doing good because they've been here for a long time and which ones, you know, are crushing or doing great. Like, I don't get the question. I go, which ones are not closing a lot that you're going to fire um, because you're not closing and which other ones are doing good. And he said, Mike, uh, why would we ever fire someone? It doesn't cost us anything. There's no salary on these people. Um, and so if they bring in one sale a month, that's great for our business. And I was like, Oh boy, we are completely <laughs> on two different tracks. See the issue John, what's his name? Sales manager John, is where are all these appointments coming from? Our leads, our brand in the market, our online brand online, our word of mouth, um, our reputation, the marketing dollars we pay. Uh, so people call in and then you send out the leads that to different salespeople on the team. And then they bring home a lead and you're okay with that, even if it took them five percent or ten percent closing ratio um the issue is that you're talking to me as if this was cutco 
where Cutco did not give me a single thing. I could go to my neighborhood and have my next door neighbor give me an order. And I haven't sold anything in a year. And I go and I bring them an order. And Cutco says, that's awesome. You just brought us an order. It didn't cost us anything. We will gladly take that order. It costs them nothing. With us, every lead costs us money. So you're not measuring at all lead to close ratio. So we started tracking that. And not to our surprise, uh, out of the team, three people on the team were closing less than 10%. They were closing six, seven, eight percent. So they were burning dozens of leads per week. The good sales reps were closing 25 to 45%, right? So what do we do? We put the ones on below 10% on performance improvement plans. We're going to track you. If you keep burning our leads, it costs us thousands of dollars because if you were a better salesperson, you would actually close these, which would give us more money and give you more opportunity, right? If you're not doing that, then we're going to put you on a performance plan. We're going to have to let you go. We're going to hire someone else that hopefully closes more than you do, right? So that's like an example of what we would do in sales. It's just data. Just like what's the average sales price that you're closing? So how much profit are you selling? And what's the actual lead to close ratio? Separate from that, right? Completely separate from that is um, is uh, we look at our investors, our 50 investors. So we have 50 pretty world class investors. And if the company that we just bought does B2B, but they sell to businesses, we look at our investors and we say, which of our investors could actually help us close big deals? Because these small businesses, before we got involved, they would salivate of trying to get one of these meetings, you know, get alone 20 of them. So the company we just bought does IT deployment for grocery stores, for fast food restaurants, for department stores, things like that. Um, and so they would do Dollar General and Sports Authority. and You get the publics and so forth. So when you look at our investors, Chris, it's the Publix family, it's the Chick-fil-A family, Costco, right? Um, just Popeyes, the list goes on and on. And so we told the GM of the business, hey, here's your new shareholders. And he's like, whoa, like seven of them or eight of them could be like the biggest account we ever landed. I was like, yeah, that's it. So before you keep calling cold people, focus on the people that actually own a piece of this company, right? So it's like legal insider trading, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. That's a good segue into this. You have a structure that is unique, but probably becoming more uh, popular, permanent capital. Why did you choose permanent capital? Why was that the thing that you wanted to do? And then maybe we can talk a little bit more about how it works. Um, I've always been fascinated by Warren Buffett and how when he finds a good business like a C's Candy, he just allows it to just continue on in cash flow and uses that as a vehicle to invest in things like Coca-Cola and American Express, right? And so forth. And then once that starts to cash flow, he uses that cash flow to buy other businesses and you get the snowball effect, right? Um, and so I've always liked that. It just has made sense to me. And then I started to read research and data on it. And just here it is really simply. Um, I was flying back with the same trip that you and I spoke about from the ranch and a friend of mine, a friend of mine and I were flying back and he sold his company's private equity six years ago. Um, his business was making about $10 million of free cash flow a year. He sold it for 6 million bucks or six times. So he sold it for $60 million. He sold half of it. Okay. Um, and now they're about to, they've grown a lot and they're about to sell for like 15 times. Okay. 
Um, and let's just say that this friend of mine um, has a net worth after this transaction of about $100 million. Big deal. He keeps getting diluted every time private equity does around. So he's worth $100 million, Chris. And so I ask him, hey, um, I'm not going to say his name, but hey, friend, um, six years later, what would your cash flow be this year? Uh, what would that be? He was like, probably $25 million, uh, free cash flow. I was like, wow, it's incredible. So he would have like doubled. He's like, yeah, we would probably doubled in the last uh, six years just on organic growth. I go, and you're worth how much? And you go, after this transaction, we're about to do about $100 million. I was like, so if you had this business though, in four years from today, not including what you made the last six years, you would get $100 million. That next year, or the next four years, another 100 in the next four years, another 100 That's just not growing. And another 100 another 100 another 100 And he was like, yeah, I regret it. I focused on the big pile of money now instead of the ongoing continuous stream of income later. And when you get that big payout, now there's tax consequences. And now guess what he has to do with the money? Find a vehicle to go invest it into, right? And find a way to diversify, right? Versus before he had it in a vehicle that he knew more about than anybody else, right? Um, and so clearly if anyone's thinking about selling their business to me right now, I'm clearly talking them kind of out of it, right? Um, and, and the other thing about it is for me, business is a platform, right? And so your business is a platform. So when you sell your business, are you selling your platform? Are you selling your opportunity to bless and impact people? Now, granted, if you're retiring and, you know, those days are gone and you don't have a son or daughter in the business, then you have no other option to sell. But my friend's in his 40s, right? So he was focused on the big sum of money rather than ongoing capital stream. Where to invest this large pile of capital now? And he lost his platform. Go a little deeper on platform, being able to bless and, and help people. How do you think about that? And uh, I don't think they, they don't say that in business school, own a business so that you can bless and help people. So what does that mean? Yeah. Um, so there's so many nonprofits out there focused on like um, going into for-profit businesses to try to impact lives in the marketplace. Um, and they, because we spend most of our time in the marketplace, right? In our life, we spend our time working and sleeping. And so those nonprofits have to ask for permission, right? They have to ask for permission. So when it's a giving nonprofit or when it's a chaplain, right? Like in like corporate chaplains of America nonprofit or when it's whatever it may be, right? Um, they have to ask for permission. When you're the owner, you don't have to ask for permission. You're like, here's what we're going to do. Right. So you have authority and say over what you want to do around how you want to bless people. I had a call today with the business owner that he owns a bank out in uh, Kansas. And every single uh, Christmas, he puts a thousand dollars in his hundreds of employees accounts. Um, he puts it in a donor advice fund and he tells it to and he tells them to go ahead and and um, and gift it out. Right. Um, after he goes ahead and gives it out every year, his ink his giving on his company it grows by 1%. So he's only company now for 35 years. So he gives 35% away. Next year will be 36%. The next year, 37%. Um, of that, that he gives away, uh, based on your tenure in the company, gives you an end of the year bonus, right? So he uses his company to bless people is my net net of it. You know, um, the way that we say is the two biggest things that uh, ruins uh, marriages is, or the two, the, the two hardest things in life is marriages and finances, right? So, 
uh, we, if we want people to come to work ready to crush it and excited to work and giving it their best and how they're interacting with each other and their customers, we know the two biggest thing and data shows us, Barna Group shows us it's finances and marriage. So let's bless people's marriage right? By giving them marital counseling, which we do, or marital books, which we do, or resources, which we do, right? Or financial counseling, right? So give them access to certain groups, right? That provide, there's a lot of nonprofits out there that provide free resources on how to save or on how to get out of debt. Dave Ramsey, right? So a lot of people just are not encouraged or not given these resources, right? And so for us, it's like, how can we use business as a force for good to bless people so they can be better husbands? better wives. And in return, it's an actual investment, right? Like Chick-fil-A, Dan Cathy is one of our investors. Um, and when you ask Chick-fil-A, you know, if everything was not about honoring God and blessing your people and serving your people, how much more revenue do you think that y'all would do? He says zero, right? Like, I think, we, I think we'd be worth zero. So he sees that that is their business. That's what leads to their tens of billions of dollars, Right, that leads them to grow by double digit year year growth when the whole industry is decreasing by single digit. Right, uh, when they're closed on Sundays, yet their average store is grossing millions of dollars. Right, the model does not make sense. The model is silly when you say it out loud. Yet it's uncomparable to any other model by far. But they're obsessed with blessing people, so it's not a nice to do. They do it because they actually, it's the right thing to do. And it's the smart business decision. Costco does it. Trader Joe's, Patagonia, Publix, right? A lot of businesses that do it, they do it because it's the right thing, but it's their moat. It is their moat. It is what sets them apart. Do you think it's possible to take a company that didn't think that way and instill that? Or does that have to kind of start at the beginning and the DNA of what started it? I, I would imagine it's harder to to push a company there that's done something away for 30 years. Or do you have a different opinion on that? It's all about the founder's heart. It's all about their, it's all about their founder's heart. It's all about the person who runs it hard. Um, you could have a person, and there's a lot of stories like this where... A guy's life was a total wreck. You know, it's all about the profit. It's all about work. It's all about self. You know, people are are expend, are exposable. You know, they're all a cog in the wheel, and then they have a sudden life change. Maybe they find faith, right? But they start realizing that life's about serving others, and they start realizing that businesses just exist for people and among people. There is no business if there's not people, and they start to realize... So it has to start with them personally, and they could easily start to change that. happens with us. It goes from one owner to the other owner, same business, same customers, same people, same office, same logo. Completely different story. I did uh, an episode three ago with a guy named Steve Robinson, who was the chief marketing officer at Chick-fil-A for 35 years. And it was... Oh, yeah. I know his son. Yeah. Oh, so good. Um, yeah. It was he wrote a great book. Uh, the Covert Cowboy... Co Covert Cows. I had to read it before we actually would record. That was his one ask. And so it was cool hearing that Dan Cathy's involved. Uh, man, that's that's incredible. Um just talk a little bit about how permanent capital actually works. Cause some people in the finance world say that's weird. The whole finance world is built on a return in like three to five years. And you're telling me you're going to take my money forever. Um, yeah, and my response to them is say what you just said. Private equity is that you get a return in three to five years. And our thing is you will also get a return with us in three to five years. 
Now, you're not going to get three to five times your initial investment. It's going to be more like a property. So if you go ahead and you buy a real estate property, and let's just say that this real estate property is yielding 250k a year of income, right? Uh, and you buy it for five times that that cash flow, that rental income. Well, you know, one way to view it is first year you make 250k, and the next year you make 250k, and the next year you make 250k, and eventually, once you hit that sixth year, you got all your money back. So what happens year seven, eight, nine, ten to from here as Buzz Lightyear says, infinity and beyond keeps cash flowing. So ours is the same exact thing with our investors. It's like, yeah, we buy a business, it's cash flowing. We buy for a certain time multiple, and based on the cash flow of the business, we pay you out of the cash flow, and you get your money back in a couple of years, depending what multiple we buy the business for, and depending how much more we want to reinvest back in. So you'll get your money back, and if we go lights out. And we grow the business like crazy. Maybe you get your full cabo back in three to four years, probably more like five to six, you know? And then from there, years seven onwards, you're just getting a nice mailbox money. You're just getting a nice distribution in the mail. So uh, that's different. Yes, that is different than you buy a business, you grow it, you get multiple arbitrage, you buy it with a bunch of debt, you bolt it on with a bunch of other businesses and you flip it for two to four times, right? Um, and yeah, that's great. That's awesome. And I'm a fund, I'm a fund in some of those deals, uh, or I'm an LP in some of those funds of those deals. Um, it's just not what I was called to. You know, I like more of the predictable cash flow things of buying and holding. Okay. So then I have two questions. What do you t- I'm assuming you control cash at the business level. So how do you how do you tell your CEOs either uh, is there a hurdle rate that you say if you can't meet this threshold quote unquote I guess you're in Atlanta correct well I was going to say send the cash to Omaha but we'll say send the cash to Atlanta so maybe you could give a little color and how that works and then on your end how you determine what you're going to do with the cash once you get it are you going to put it in another business or are you going to send it to investors? So there's kind of two ways that cash makes its way out the door. How do you think about those? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the investors or sorry, the CEOs that have equity, um, just like us, we don't eat until our investors eat first and maybe get a little dessert. And then we come to the table and eat, right? AKA we don't make money until our investors get their money back. And so, right. And so um, our, our CEOs and our management team are in the same position that we're in. So we are working to pay back the shareholders that allowed us by the company. Once they get their capital back, now we're all eating together, right? Um, and so our management team, they know that when they say, hey, we need to hire a head of sales for X hundred thousand dollars a year, it's going to hurt the time that we're going to pay back that cash flow, right? But if we believe it's an investment, we'll make it all together, right? So that's the way it works. Um, And once that company starts to make money uh, for us uh, with that cash flow, we'll typically just pay it out. We'll we'll make the necessary investments into the business that it needs for for the long term. Um, And and besides that, we'll start to cash flow it out. We typically won't use that cash flow um, for other businesses unless unless it's in the identical uh, space. Um, and in the same business, because on our deals, Chris, uh, depending what deal it is, we bring some strategic co-investors alongside. So it wouldn't really be fair to use the cash flow of that company for a whole nother deal if that makes sense if we're not involved in that. 
All right. Got a couple more and then we'll, we'll bring it home. This has been awesome. Um, I think we just kind of touched on it with talking about Chick-fil-A, but somebody on Twitter, I, I put a tweet out saying, does anybody have questions for Mike? And uh, one that came in that I liked was, what's his favorite example or story of a Christian businessman that has killed it in both their biz and their walk with the Lord? Many times you hear them excelling in one and not the other. Um, is there an example you have? We talked about the Kathy family. They are the model. But is there is there another cool story that maybe you'd share? Um, that's a layup. I wish you gave me a harder question. <laughs> I, yeah. got, I got a couple I, zingers coming. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's a that's an easy one. Um, you, if you're listening to this podcast and your faith is important to you, but you feel as though some days you find yourself running on empty, um, and you feel as though your pace is too quick, too fast, and sometimes your family even sees you deteriorating before their own very eyes, um, I give you uh, grace. Because there is a book that is my favorite book I've ever read from a business leader that uh, he had a burnout completely, um, but he rescued it through God. God was able to rescue him. Um, and his name is Terry Looper. Um, and the name of the book is called Sacred Pace. Sacred Pace. Um, and Terry um, burned out and he was like, you know what? I'm going to start completely different. I'm not going to set any sales goals. And I'm only going to work 40 hours a week for the rest of my life. Um, no more than 40 hours a week. And, um, and so Terry started that business, um, a while back and he's done pretty well. Yeah. Terry's done pretty well. His company, uh, does about five to six billion dollars a year. <laughs> he owns, he owns a hundred percent of it. Um, and he, uh, anytime I call Terry, he's like, Mike, hey, what you doing? I'm just like, ah. Oh. You know, just just trying to figure out life, Terry. What are you doing? He's like, oh, not much. Just sitting here having a glass of wine with Doris. Doris, say hi. You know, and I'm like, you're always just like at the fire pitch, having a glass of wine. Like, yeah, you know, I gotta come home. And I'll call him again. Like, Mike, what you doing? Oh, Terry, you know, I'm just burning out. I got a headache. You know, I haven't seen blah blah blah. What are you doing? He's like, oh, just finished a Bible study here with my grandson. You know, blah blah. Or hey, I just got the big serve. Let's go play golf with my family always available, always present, never has too much on his plate, says no constantly, always in the word of God, always with his family. Um, it's amazing. And yet alone has built an incredible business while honoring God, while most of all honoring his family. I look forward to reading that book. I'm going to order it uh, when we're done. Can you spoil what the business is? Is it something we would know or is it a... Yeah, it's in Houston. It's called Texon. Um, it's a very large oil uh, company that does uh, commodity trading uh, in the oil space. Um, but Terry should absolutely be on your podcast. I'm going to maybe reach out to him. I appreciate that. A mutual friend of ours said, uh, slowing down. You might know who asked me this question or told me to ask this question. Um, slowing down. Why did he consciously decide to do this? And what have been your consequences, good and bad? Got to tell me after the podcast who that was. You were at a um, ranch with him this weekend. Okay, yeah, okay. Um, last year was on the surface a really awesome year. Um, bought several companies. Uh, my network blew up, you know, to the point that like 
you know, I'd be driving home in the car. My wife, like, well, I gotta answer this. It's X, Y, Z person. Like, that's insane that he even has my number, you know, like that's cool. Or like, gotta go to that. I mean, who gets invited to, you know, blah, 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 blah. Like that's, that's insane, you know, or like, yeah. And so forth. And so network grew. the private investments blew up, you know, in a good way, like did really well. Um, you know, just everything. It was awesome. It was great. Just crushing it financially, crushing it with the network, the connections, just everything that I've ever wanted as a little boy, you know, like finally I made it. This is incredible. And then, um, every, every Christmas I take my family, um, to the beach. Um, that's my favorite place in the world. My three little kiddos and it's my, it's my happy place. And I'm on the beach, um, down in the Caribbean and I'm not happy. I'm like, whoa, well, like, hold on. I'm at the beach. I love the place we're staying. I'm with my kiddos. What is going on? It's not it's like, it's not there. It's there every year. It's not there. And I, I, I trained myself to get my identity from who I knew and what I did and being addicted to performance um, to the point that I was like, this is really bad. Like I'm with things that matter most, my family and kids on the beach after Christmas. And I'm not on the treadmill, figuratively speaking. And I feel like I have no purpose, I feel like no, no identity. So, um, thankfully, uh, through some conversations, there were some friends and a mentor and a spiritual director and everything. I just, I basically said my theme for 2022 onwards is to desire less and to totally divert, totally divert. Um, so I said no to every single uh, business event in 2022. Um, so I literally have not gone to a business event this whole entire year. Um, my best friends host incredible events and I just, I don't go. And I, and I believe that I just want to desire less. Um, and even, and even when it comes to the fundraise, like we'll probably deploy our whole fund instead of five and a half years, probably three years. And it's like, oh, are you going to raise 150 million? Are you going to raise 250 million? Are you going to raise blah, blah, blah? It's like, no, I think I need a desire less. I think maybe we just have a flat raise. We just have the same fundraise again, you know? And so the good side, the positive side, Chris, is you get to reap the fruit of what matters most. All the, all the, yeah, all, which is time with your family, uh, which is being present, which is love, joy, peace patience, uh, joy in just the little things, um, like being, having fun. Um, I, I got robbed in my childhood. There's another great book called Becoming a King that, um, that's incredible and just talks about, you know, getting robbed of your childhood and becoming more of your true self. So it's a, it's, it's a difficult journey when you compare it to the world, but when you're basking in it, like today, I'm home yesterday home, the day before tomorrow this weekend i got nothing to do it's five o'clock i'm gonna go home and you know, hang out with my wife and watch my kids and just that's it there, there was probably a bunch of dinners i could do tonight a bunch of friends that asked me to go and play golf or hit balls or meet them at their house for a drink or blah blah, blah. i just say no to everything now because i'm just really believing that my family matters most um, so that's a good stuff the bad stuff is 
I mean, not to get too over spiritual, but I think when you desire less, you will probably get less. I know the whole other side of it of like when you desire less, like God will bless you and you'll get so much more because you desired less and naturally your bad overflows. And it's like, maybe, I don't think so. Um, I think that I know a lot of people who desire a lot and they leave it all in the field and they are constantly striving and they have a lot have a lot. They have big, nice, fancy toys and they're, you know, a lot of people in there and, and, and they have a lot. I think the downside is that when I compare myself to that, um, it, my insecurities flare up, you know? And so that's the, that's a downside, you know, is, is when you desire less, you have less and you just have to be okay with that and realize that what you have is actually worth more than the less. And the, the world that we live in today is not, uh, the the the, narr- the mainstream narrative is not uh, consume less. It is, I mean, you can't get on the internet. You can't get on your phone without finding something to buy or a trip to go to. Or you see your you know friend's family looks like they're having a great time on the beach. Little do you know they were probably fighting right before that picture, but it still looks great. Um, yeah, it's it's a, it, it makes it tougher for sure. Yeah, and it's surrounding yourself by people that are not like you. So we have an au pair from Italy. And I love, I think it was God's gift to us that she's in our family because like every day she just gets a, like a needle and pops the bubble that I live in, where it's like in, in our Western society of America, everything is do the least you can to try to get the most you can in the quickest amount of time that you can. Right. And when you, and she just constantly like, man, like, I don't get this. Everyone's here on vacation, but everyone's on their phone. And she's from Europe. And she's like, why do they come here to be on their phone? I'm like, it's a good question. Or she's like, why do they go out to dinner and spend all this money in such a beautiful restaurant? And they just scarf it down so quickly and they're gone in an hour. Like, why don't they just sit there and talk and laugh for like three to four hours? You know, I'm like, that's a good question. You know, or she's just like, why are they working so hard? Like, why do they work so much? You know, like why, like we all like, and so this outside perspective of the of the East comparing to our Western Hemisphere, Western society, we live in a bubble. Like as a nation, we live in a bubble of all bubbles. You know, it's just work, 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 get more, do more. You know, all with like. So I'm really, I'm really trying to zoom out and say, what does, what does a slower life look like? Another great book is the Ruthless Elimination Curry. By John Mark Comer. So there's a theme here. There's a theme here. You know, the theme is not do more, faster, make more, be hurried, right? It's all the opposite of that. It's be present, be slow, desire less. And actually enjoy the Sabbath, which is the day that God gave us to do all that. I, I read John Mark Comer and that I, I got done with that going like, man, my Sundays are usually now my busiest days. Um and just taking that one day of rest actually has had a huge impact on my life. Yeah. And telling people like not, not caring, like I don't care anymore. I'll leave and people, people, I don't care what they think there when I say this, but people email me asking me for time or asking me for advice or asking me for whatever. And a lot of times I won't even, I won't even respond. Who came up with the rule that whenever random strangers email you, you must email them all back. Or when people ask you for your time, you have to give people your time. 
you know? And so a good rule of thumb is that if you wouldn't take the call with this person tomorrow, don't take, don't take the call three weeks from now, schedule it, you know? And so this has been a process for me that I was like, okay, I feel bad as a Christian leader, like just not answering them. So let me just, instead of taking the call, ask them what they want to speak about. And then they email me like 17 questions. Now what do I do? Now I'm even in a deeper hole. So now I just have a template that says like, hey, thanks so much for your email. Um, unfortunately, I'm in a season right now. I don't know if I, when I'll get out of it, but I'm in a season right now that I'm just not taking on calls. I'm not responding to emails. I'm really trying to focus on my wife and kids. I'm trying to steward my business well. And unfortunately, with my wife and family and stewarding my business well and friends and self, you know, I don't have time to respond to emails and to call people and to attend things. So I hope you understand. And the, the responses, I think it really makes people be like, Wow, like I respect that, you know? And if they don't like that, I don't care because you're not my wife or kids, you know? Um, and so you just have to ca- stop caring what people think. Like, really, you know, this whole digital thing, where does it stop? That is a great question. I, I honestly think the pendulum is shifting in a lot of ways where there's a lot more the narrative of this is not sustainable long term. And to what your point, we strapped a little camera to our, you know, it's always in our, our computer in our pocket that not only makes the emails come in at, at a pace, but it gives you an opportunity to see them all day, every day. And I struggle with the same thing, man. Like, how do you just not, how do you politely not engage, but not get that FOMO that, man, if I miss this, this could be the the thing. This could be the email that, you know, or, or I always think I always wanted people to answer my email when I was coming up in the business. I feel like I have to do this for that person. And there's some days I follow your rule and I'm like, I'm not responding to anybody. And then every now and again, I just totally cave and I'm like, oh, I'm going to respond to everybody. And um, <laughs> I need to get better know, at it. I know exactly what you mean. And um, and the thing is, you know, give yourself grace. You know, there's so much more of like, who's going to be, who's going to be at your funeral, right? I'd rather love a select few than just touch, you know, many. So I do believe that we are called to love on people and we are called to mentor people. But if I, all I'm doing is being responsive, I can never be proactive, right? So it's just, it's just that simple. Mike, you've been generous with your time. This was a amazing conversation and I'm really glad that we're connected. Thank you very much. Same. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it very much. Thank you, Chris. Everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.